And there ends the reading, Genesis chapter 45. As you see, the title of today's message is the question, Get Lucky. When Michelle and I lived in Philadelphia, when I was a student at Westminster Theological Seminary, the radio and TV stations in that area would frequently run commercials for some of the casinos in Atlantic City, New Jersey, which was not far from that area. One of those commercials has stayed in my mind for all these many years because it featured a song by Frank Sinatra. Now, I've never been a huge fan of Frank Sinatra, but certainly I know who he was and the fact that he was very, very famous as an actor, but before that as a singer back in the 40s and 50s and part of the 60s. But the song featured Frank Sinatra singing it, but the song that was run as part of the commercial for these casinos was actually written by a man named Frank Lesnar back in 1950. The lyrics relate the point of view of a gambler who hopes that he will win a bet and that the outcome will decide whether he is able to save his relationship with the girl of his dreams. And the title of that song, if you've not figured it out, immortalized by Sinatra, is Luck Be a Lady. Luck Be a Lady. And that is very much the theme song of the professional gambler, the, uh, the lottery player, and the person who bets on sports games. Luck be good to me. Fortune, smile on me. Someone might think that was what benefited Joseph. He got lucky. He got real lucky. Now, there are details in this story that I'm not going to review, and any who may be listening to this or any of you here uh, today who are not familiar with the material in Genesis 42, 43, and 44, I encourage you strongly to go back and read that material. But today I want to focus on what we've heard in chapter 45, and by all accounts, one of the most moving and remarkable scenes in all of Scripture. Here, at last, we find that Joseph has decided to reveal his true identity to his brothers, who were still completely unaware as to who he really was. They thought they were dealing with the governor of Egypt. The chapter before us contains not only this dramatic account, but one of the most important doctrines, or at least it portrays for us or demonstrates for us one of the most important doctrines of our biblical faith concerning what we believe about God. But this theme, although I'm going to show you how I believe it's highlighted in these verses, it runs right from the beginning of Genesis through the end of the book of Revelation. Now, in getting up to this point, <clears throat> I want us to think about the verses that we've read in three different parts. The first has to do with verses 1 through 15. There, in those 15 verses, the truth finally comes out. Joseph very emotionally reveals his true identity to his brothers. And just look at how his brothers react. You see there in verse 3, that they could not utter a word in response to him. Because now the, the text there in the New King James and I think the ESV, it says they were dismayed when they realized it was him. But the Hebrew term means something even more severe than just the fact that they were dismayed. Literally, it means they were speechless with fright. I like the older English term dumbstruck. I mean, this was beyond their imagination. Joseph, their thought-to-be-dead brother, the supreme ruler of Egypt. And they were so stunned they couldn't say a word. 
And notice, too, that Joseph makes certain that they know that this is really him. He tells them twice, I am Joseph. And just to make sure, he throws in whom you sold into Egypt. You see that in verse 4. Only Joseph could have known that. The brothers certainly never told anyone among themselves, outside of themselves, about what they'd done. But Joseph senses here that they are afraid, and probably because they assume he's going to use his great power to get even with them. It's, it's payback time, so they think. But he goes to great lengths to soothe their fears and calm them down. He tells them of his plan to provide for their every need. And so the people of God, and let's remember, like we learned last time, this is the, the nascent church, the old covenant church, are going to be delivered from famine. Each of those 12 brothers, some of you know this, they would be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And had it not been for what happened here in Egypt, they might have all perished. I mean, that was a stroke of good luck. Or was it? Oh, we'll get back to that question in a moment, but let's push ahead and consider the next section, verses 16 to 20, where we read how Pharaoh really rolls out the red carpet so to speak. He really puts on the, uh, uh, the, the mantle of hospitality. He tells them not to be concerned about anything. Their needs will be taken care of. And as long and when that Pharaoh is alive, the people of God, the church of the old covenant, will be treated well. Unfortunately, as we have learned in our study in the book of Exodus, that Pharaoh's successor were, to use the classic words of the authorized version, a generation that knew not Joseph. And so his successors would be not very generous to God's people. But here the king is deeply thankful that Joseph and his God saved Egypt from extinction by famine. So then moving on to the final verses, the final third section, 21 to 28, Joseph, we read, sends a caravan of gifts to his family to show them his good faith and to entice them, to encourage them to leave the land of Canaan, where they're all starving on this journey to Egypt. And so we have the moving account of the patriarch, the elderly Jacob Israel, hearing the news that his beloved son Joseph is not only still alive, he's the governor of Egypt. Friends, that, in brief capsule, in summary form, is what has happened in this chapter, what we have read. But there's something else, as I indicated a moment ago, there's something else going here that is of the greatest importance. Because you see, there are two conclusions that someone might reach about these things that we have read about that, that have happened here in the life of Joseph and his family. Because you know, there's, there's one branch of Christianity, maybe, that says this is a marvel of how lucky Joseph was. I mean, just think about it. He started out life as the favorite son of his father. He quickly became a nuisance to his brothers, and they finally have had enough of him. He ends up being sold into slavery. There he winds up in jail, and now he's become the most powerful and influential man in Egypt next to the Pharaoh. I mean, you talk about luck. Talk about fate smiling on a person. That's one way to read it. That's the way many people do, perhaps. Many thousands of years ago, among the nations of the ancient world, including the peoples of the area that we're reading about in these verses, the religions of that time, the worldview of that time, taught people to believe 
in the goddess of fortune. And people who worshipped her built statues to her. Now, they generally believed that you could pray to these different gods and ask for favor. If you've ever seen the now classic motion picture film, I think from the year 2000, I think is when it came out, or maybe more recent, I don't remember, Gladiator, the movie Gladiator. There's a scene when uh, Proximo, the, the retired, undefeated gladiator who owns the stable of gladiators that he's taking back to Rome from this dusty Middle Eastern village where he's been sort of banished. He finally comes back to Rome and he's got this, they've got this cart full of the gladiators in a, in a jailed, barred cart. And they get into the area near the Colosseum in Rome where the gladiators train and get ready for their matches. And Proximo, the owner of the stable of gladiators, he gets off his horse and there's this giant statue of a man with a shield and a spear in his hand. And Proximo goes over to him and he kisses his own two fingers and then he touches the foot of that statue and says, it's been a long time, old friend. And then he whispers, bring me good luck. I, I believe that was the statue of Hercules from what my research or anybody who may be wondering who it was. But the people of the ancient world built statues to the goddess of fortune. And they worshipped her. They begged for her favor. Typically, the statue of fortune or fortuna, as she was called in Latin, she was depicted wearing a blindfold over her eyes. And that was the symbol that her rewards were given out randomly, bestowed without rhyme or reason. I'm not talking about the statue of justice, you know, with the scales in one hand and the book in the other. She's usually pictured blindfold, too. This is a different thing. So I want to ask you today, is this what happened to Joseph? Has Lady Luck smiled on him and it just happens that his number comes up and things just go his way in the end? Well, again, before we answer that question, let us all be put on notice as we consider the alternate, the better analysis. Let us all in this room and within the sound of my voice be called to account. Each of us who is a member of this congregation or who professes to be a Christian and claim to believe in the infallible authority of Holy Scripture, that means that we are required to put aside our homegrown notions about things when it comes to the matters of belief about God. Because the Bible alone is to be the source of what we believe, not our feelings, not what our next-door neighbor tells us, not what Aunt so-and-so or Uncle What's-His-Name said about this or that in Holy Scripture. No, the Bible alone, Holy Scripture alone. And with that bit of reaffirmation, let's consider then, what is the story of Joseph? Did he get lucky? Let me point out to you that one way the Bible emphasizes important points, and this is getting to the answer to the question, the Bible uses repetition to emphasize things. As I've said before, in ancient times, I mean, these stories were originally spoken. They were orally transmitted, so there's no way you can, you know, verbally underline something. But even when these things began to be written down on parchments and targums and things like that, they didn't have the modern rules of grammar and punctuation that we have in English. They certainly didn't have computer-generated word programs. So there were no bold fonts. There were no underlining. There was no italics to emphasize something like we would typically do. So what they did to make a point is they would repeat things. If the writer repeats something, it's because generally they want to make sure you don't miss it. 
So listen again to chapter 45, verse 5. But now do not therefore, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now notice he says, for I had a streak of good luck. No, that's not what he says. I intentionally misread that. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. So what does Joseph say is the cause? What's behind all of this? Was it good luck? No, he clearly says it's Yahweh, God Almighty. And then verses 7 to 9 again, I'm reading from the New King James Version. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you and the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So he said, God sent me. In the verse 8, now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of the land of Egypt. He says, so hurry, verse 9, and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. So there are four times that Joseph says that it is God alone who brought all of this about. It was God's purpose. It was God's decree that these things would happen to Joseph and to them. Now maybe it would be helpful to put out there a definition of this word decree. Not something you typically hear in everyday speech anymore. By that, I mean that God's decrees refer to his purpose or his determination with respect to the future. So this isn't luck. It's not fate or fortune smiling on Joseph. This is the predetermined hand of God Almighty sovereignly at work to bring about his purpose in the lives of his people and of those not his people. You know, when we get to know God and his word, we begin to look at things through new eyes, don't we? And one result is that we begin to see how blinded we were before. Because for many people, we thought everything that happens is just sort of random, luck or chance. Think of it this way. If you've been to an eye doctor any time lately, you know how the doctor puts the lenses in front of your face. And he tries to, or he asks you to try to read these letters on the chart, you know, across the room. And all the while, he's flipping those lenses back and forth until he gets to the right one. And when he lands on that right one, everything that had been so blurry and fuzzy, it suddenly becomes clear, as clear as a blue sky in deepest summer. The clearer God's word comes into view, my friends, the more our focus will shift from me, my faith, my opinions, my good works, my this, my that, to God, his salvation, his grace, his glory, and his purpose. Now, I'm sure that Joseph didn't come to that understanding overnight. I'm sure there were times when his life, especially as we have it laid out in these chapters, he must have had periods of great doubt and despair. But he is speaking to his brothers as a mature believer, not someone fooled or tossed by every wind of doctrine. Okay, so maybe, let's again give it another shot. Maybe this is all a coincidence. So it says four times in this one chapter that it is God who has orchestrated and done all this. Maybe that's just something peculiar to the book of Genesis or just the Older Testament. What does the New Testament have to say about this business? Well, here's one of the many things Paul had to say about it in Romans 8.28, a passage familiar to many of us. He says in the New King James translation, and we know that all things work together for good to those who 
To those who what? Had a stroke of good luck? No, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's pretty clear. God does all of this for his people. He is the one who orchestrates it. But now Jesus taught the same thing in many places. Here's one in John 18, verse 11, just before his crucifixion. He says to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that this stroke of bad luck is? No, that's what he says. He says, which my father has given me. Uh, One translation, I like the way it puts the wording better. This is the cup the father has given to me. Am I not to drink it? But the Pharaoh, he's not even a member of God's household. Was God working through Pharaoh too? Yes, friends, God rules over all things and all people, even the minds of unbelievers. How do we know that? Again, Scripture alone teaches us. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hands of Yahweh. Like the rivers of water, he turns it where he wishes. And uh, Proverbs 16, 1, the, prepa- the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. People may think that their plans are what determines whether or not something will come to pass. But only God can bring it about. So even Pharaoh is doing the Lord's will here. God sovereignly foreordains, he predestines all things that come to pass in this world. But now right alongside that truth, that's one of the things that we see being taught in these verses, I believe. But there's another thing being taught that we dare not miss. Yahweh accomplishes will. He, he gets these things done according to his purpose and plan within the free actions of men like Joseph and his brothers and Pharaoh. See, men and women are not robots in God's creation. Like we can't do anything of our own free will. We certainly can. I mean, you, you got up and decided to, of your own free will to come to church this morning. Some people got up and decided not to. There are people listening to this by means of the sermon audio uh, player who of their own will decided to do that. Others saw the title or whatever and decided not to. No, you and I are totally responsible for everything we do and every decision that we make in this life. But the Lord has foreordained and predestined everything that comes to pass. Now, that has been a topic, of course, of disagreement and debate and misunderstanding among Christians of various sorts. And typically, on one side, you've got folks like ourselves, the Calvinists, the Reformed, the Augustinian, however you want to parse it, versus everybody else. But our goal here is not necessarily to say, I side with Calvin or Augustine or whoever. Our goal is to be faithful to the Word of God. Now, I have heard people say, when they learn or are presented with this truth, well, you know, uh, I guess that's true because... God sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, and based on what he foresees is going to happen, well, that's what he predestines to happen. And that makes them feel pretty good when they figure it out that way, because, once again, it it means God isn't quite so sovereign. But let me ask you, have you heard anybody explain it to you that way? I mean, I've even heard pastors explain election and predestination in a way like that. And you know what? They are totally and completely mistaken. The Bible does not teach that God predestines things to happen based on what he foresees is going to happen anyway. There's abundant proof in Scripture that this is so. Here are just a few examples. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Uh, One translation has that verse 10, my whole plan shall stand and I will do all the things I have planned. And then verse 11, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will also do it. There is a world of difference between God declaring something to be so and him simply seeing that it happens. Because if he declares it, that means he is in control and has the power over it. He's the one who brings it to pass, as it clearly teaches in Scripture. But if all he does is look and he sees that it happens, well, that means it's not in his hands. That means he's not sovereign. But the question is, who controls our lives today? And I suppose that is an extremely relevant question in our time, in these days in which we find ourselves. Because we have many gods, with a small g, claiming to have control over our lives, like the World Economic Forum and the evil Klaus Schwab, like whatever U.S. president or Congress or Senate or committee that you want to choose, like the Federal Reserve, or maybe, in a sense, even they believe it's Lady Luck. It's the goddess of fortune. Is that who controls us, these people and these things? Or is it the God of the Bible, the only wise God who holds forth his mighty hand to us in love and mercy? Now, he holds out his hand to the others, but it's in judgment and wrath. Um, In bringing this to a close, I want to share with you an example, an illustration that um, some of you have heard it. I'm sure it's a very old one, but I think it is appropriate. Picture, if you will, if we had a solid roof in this room. And right above where you're sitting, there were two round holes about a shoulder length apart from each other. And going up through one hole and unseen by you across a pulley and down the other hole are two lengths of rope. And they're hanging down here. And you take hold of those lengths of rope and balance yourself on them. Now, you know what would happen if you grabbed only one of the ropes and not the other. You would be going down. There wouldn't be a balance. You wouldn't be doing the things that need to be done for that to function properly. So I'm using that to say that the Bible teaches these two great truths. The electing, predestinating, sovereign power and purpose and will of God. And also that whoever believes in him will have abundant life. Whoever. Of their own will. Of course, the added parenthesis is. We know that the whoever believes are people foreordained to believe. But the point is, we choose whether we will obey God or not. And so let us today grab hold of both those ropes with the full assurance that we will one day see that both of those pieces of rope are the truth. And they are in the final analysis. The same piece of one continuous word from God. Let us pray.